You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. I'm uh, struggling with a cold this morning, so I appreciate you praying for me. We'll see how this goes getting through it. Uh, the rest of you, if you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. On Sunday mornings, we're currently in a study uh, in which we're studying through the book of Exodus in our series called Be Set Free. And uh, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus, and we're seeing this great story of God's redemption of the people of Israel. Today, we come to one of the most iconic stories in the entire Bible. It's the, the story of the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing over. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Um, But today, before we get into our study, I want to take a few minutes to give you a quick update on where we're at as a church. This is something that we plan on doing periodically just as part of our desire to share with you our vision of why we do what we do and where we see God taking us and where we are along that that path. So we're going to take a few minutes um, to talk about our future and what God has in store for us. So just a little bit of history for you guys. Um, Whitefields was started about 10 years ago by Pastor Pete Nelson. Some of you will remember him. Some of you have come since then and you don't know him, but Pete and the the people who started the church, they started with this vision to have a new church that would be laser-focused on three things, and those would be the gospel, mission, and community. The vision was to have a church that was a, a rich community of people who were passionate about the gospel, people who were actively reaching out and seeking to bring the gospel to this part of Colorado and even to the ends of the earth. The original vision for Whitefields was actually that it wouldn't remain just one church here in Longmont. The vision was that it would become a network of churches around the Front Range. And um, a, a network of churches that share the same vision, a network of churches that are passionate about the gospel and have a heart for reaching out and bringing the gospel to the world. So about five years ago, Pete reached out to me. I was living in Hungary at the time, pastoring there. And uh, Pete said that he felt that he had brought Whitefields as far as he could bring it. And he asked me and my wife if we would come and we would take over because he was looking for somebody who he could pass the baton to who could help Whitefields fulfill this vision that God had originally given for the church. So my wife and I actually had some experience with that kind of model. Uh, That's what we were doing in Hungary, kind of building a network of churches. And so we came here about uh, four and a half years ago and we've, we've enjoyed being part of this church. We love being here. Uh, because we do feel that this church is made up of people who care about reaching out to other people and who, who love the gospel. And we, we want to keep pressing forward. We love what God has done, but we want to keep pressing forward and, uh, and see that vision be fulfilled as much as God wants to fulfill it. So we believe the best is yet to come for this church. I believe that's also core to what it means to be a Christian. That's core to Christian doctrine. The best is yet to come. And so as part of that, uh, you know, a few months ago, we designed a, a vision and a mission with our elders. We sat down and we kind of nailed it down. So I want to tell you what that is. Our vision and our mission for our church is this. Our, our vision is to build and foster a passionate, engaged, and spiritually healthy Christian community to influence Longmont and bless Longmont and beyond through the making of disciples of Jesus Christ, through the teaching of God's word, and through engaging in the mission of God both here and there and everywhere. I kind of tacked that last part on myself. But. Everything we do here at Whitefields is about those things, um, from community groups to how we do children's ministry 
to the outreach projects that we do. And I'm excited about that. One, one thing I'm really excited about is that uh, in this past year, in 2016, we have done more of those things that God has called us to do. We've done more of those things than ever before. I want to give you a couple examples. Uh, local outreach. Uh, we expanded one of our local outreaches that we're doing right now to uh, people in foster care system. We expanded it this year to include a summer program called Project Back to School. So that, that puts us doing four uh, big outreaches, one for each quarter uh, here at Whitefields every year. So we've got our Easter outreach, which is attended by about 1,000 people. Uh, we have our Project Back to School, which provides um, school supplies and clothing for needy families in our area. Uh, we also have this uh, festival on Maine. We have a presence there, and we seek to reach out to people. And then, of course, we do Project Greatest Gift here at Christmas time. In the realm of teaching and, uh, and community, we've seen the expansion of our community groups. We have new community groups going. We're excited about that. We've also seen our school of ministry and discipleship classes expand recently. As far as mission goes, missions, we've done more for foreign missions this year than ever before. We sent three mission trips. We sent one to Ukraine, one to Hungary and Romania. We sent another one to Haiti. We also purchased nearly 100 Bibles. You guys donated money, and we purchased 100 Bibles for Middle Eastern refugees. We also gave a large donation to help buy a church building. We don't even have our own church building, but we gave a donation to help buy a church building in Ukraine. Also, this past August, some of you will remember, we introduced this vision for the future. We kind of put these packets out at the back. Um, this kind of outlines some stuff, but here's the thing you need to know. We updated these, and so if you want to know what progress we've made since we first introduced them, Please pick one up in the back table. We're also going to post it online on the city, which is kind of our internal website. But here's the, here's the story that I wanted to in, uh, update you on. You know, one of the reasons why we meet in this building is because it allows us the financial freedom to really focus our, our time and our effort and our money on the things that we really care about. And those things are not, we don't really care about buildings per se, or really at all. What we care about is people, mission, community, the gospel, and by having low overhead by meeting in this building, we're able to be more focused on those things. Yet, we do feel that moving forward, in order to expand our ministry, it will be helpful for us to have our own facility. But here's the thing, we, we don't want to do that if it detracts from what we really care about. So here's what we have, here's kind of the approach we've taken, and in a way, it's almost counterintuitive. We're going to increase our focus on things like missions and we're going to give more money to missions and we're going to focus our our energy on outreach and then we're also going to tell people well okay so here's what we need to do to get out of this building get into our own building and we're going to do that so we never want a building to detract from our mission and so that's kind of the approach we've taken and that's why I'm sharing with you that we're expanding ministry we're not taking away from ministry and we're just trusting God that if he wants us in a building, he's going to put us in a building. And so um, part of this financial vision had, uh, it had four steps. One of the steps we've already completed, which was uh, set aside reserves. We completed that over a year and a half ago. But the step we're working on right now is to raise money for a down payment for a building. And so we said that, you know, for a 20% down payment on a million dollar property, which is kind of the m minimum that we need, we need uh, $200,000. So we started out, I've got a graph up there for you, but I, we started out in August. Um, we had already been working on this as elders, but we hadn't really shared that with anybody else. And so we realized, well, we should really share this with everybody. So we did. 
So by that time, we had already set aside around $53,000. Since August, since we proposed this to you and invited you to participate in it, uh, we've raised another $37,600-something, which is awesome. And that puts us on track to actually, you know, if that continues, then we will probably reach that goal sooner than we thought we would. We originally said one to three years. I mean, at this point, we'll be doing it in less than a year. So that's exciting. Um, We're excited about that. As for the rest of this year, again, our vision is not to have a building. Our vision is to see what God would do through this ministry. So for the rest of this year, uh, we have some things going on. We're wrapping up Project Greatest Gift right now. Um, We're going to be doing that for the next couple weeks. We've also got, uh, we're finishing up another round of our school and ministry and discipleship classes. We've got an intensive class coming up soon. And then uh, we're doing two Christmas Eve services. So we encourage you to invite people to that. We find statistics show that if people are invited to Christmas Eve service, they actually tend to come. So we want to provide space for people to come. Um, We're excited about that. And uh, so please be praying for our church. Please be uh, praying about how you can get involved in these things that God's doing here, whether that means joining a community group or whether it means uh, getting involved in one of our service opportunities. Uh, If you'd like to give towards our down payment project, you can do that. We have online giving or you can pick up one of the packets in the back and there's an envelope in there. But would you please just pray with me? And we're going to pray for our church and just where we're at and where God's taken us. I think this is all really exciting. I hope you feel excited and encouraged hearing about some of these things that God's doing. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Whitefields and we thank you for the work that you do in us through it and the work that you do through us here at Whitefields. And God, we just consecrate all of it to you. And we just uh, say, Lord, we are here Use us, speak to us, use us, bless us, help us to minister to each other, help us to minister to people in our community and people in the, in the world in a way that honors you and in a way that you would want to see us do that. So Lord, we ask uh, your blessing upon our church. We consecrate all of these things to you. And uh, God, we ask also as we get into your word today that you would speak to us. We ask that you would speak to us a, a living word from your heart and that truly it would pierce our hearts in those areas where we need to be spoken to and where you want to address things in our lives. So God, we pray that in all of these things, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. We'll begin today by reading our text, which comes from Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hairoth between Migdol and the sea in front of Bel Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue you, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers. Verse 11, then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so we can serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. You will see the salvation of the Lord that he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. 
The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Verse 21. Then Moses reached out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course with the morning appearing, when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. This is God's word. You know, there are some words in, uh, in certain languages, including our own, for which there are no equivalents, right? There's no other word that you could replace that word with. Let me give you some examples from some different languages. There's this word in German. It is Kummerspeck, right? Kummerspeck is a German word which refers to when you gain weight from emotional eating, like you're sad and so you eat. And I think it's funny because the word literally means sadness bacon, right? Like you're sad, so you ate a bunch of bacon. All right, so there's no, no word for that in any other language. These Germans are very creative. Here's a Scottish word, the word tartle. Tartle is that panicky feeling you get when you're about to introduce somebody to somebody else and then you forget what their name is and you're like, ah, oh, they have a word for that in Scottish. Okay, here's another German word. Bachpfeifengesichts. It's a German word for a face which deserves to be slapped. We all know what that is but they actually have a word for it. Here's another one, menkolek, right? This is, uh, you know that thing that happens when you're standing next to somebody and then you reach around their back and tap them on the opposite shoulder so they look that way, but there's actually nobody there. Uh, the Indonesians have a word for that move, which is pretty cool. I'm glad they did that. All right, here's another one, iksurapuk. This is an Inuit word, right, uh, for that thing where you're expecting somebody, but they're late, and so you keep going outside to see if they've come yet. They have a word for that. These words have no equivalent. They explain something. Like, you can explain what they mean. They, they express something, but there's no other word that adequately does what that word does. And the Bible contains words that are like that, actually, when it comes to spiritual things. Words like sin and salvation, righteousness, sovereignty, providence, redemption, justification. These are words which, there's no equivalent for these words. They describe something which we don't have other words to describe. And for many people today, they can seem like foreign words. Like, I don't even know what that means. Phrases like, you know, God justified me and are you saved? And these can seem like foreign language to certain people. But try as we might, or desire as we might, to replace these with other words, we can't because there, we have no other words that describe so the, the unique depth of meaning that these words themselves carry. 
And so here's the thing. Rather than abandon these words and say, well, nobody understands what they mean, we have to explain them. And that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible explains what these terms mean for us. But here's what's interesting. When you come to the Bible for an explanation of what these words mean, the Bible doesn't give you a dictionary definition, right? It's not like you turn to the back and the Bible says, just in case you're wondering, here's what sin means and gives you like a one-sentence description. No, you know what the Bible does when it explains to us what these words mean? It gives us stories. You know, it says stuff like, do you want to know what faith means? Let me tell you a story about a guy named Abraham. I'll tell you all about him. That's what faith looks like. It says, do you want to know what providence, that word providence means? Let me tell you a story about a guy named Joseph. Do you know what sin is and what it does, what it all means? Let me tell you a couple stories. And if you want to know what the word salvation means, there's no better place in the Bible that you can come than to the book of Exodus. Every part of the Bible, interestingly, refers back to the book of Exodus as a paradigm, as a picture of salvation. And not just Exodus in general, but specifically the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing over of the Red Sea, how God saved the people of Israel by parting the waters of the Red Sea and allowing them to cross over. The Bible says over and over in the New Testament that that is a picture of the salvation that not only God worked then, but that he wants to work in our lives, my life, and your life today as well. The same thing that God did in the Exodus for the people of Israel, he wants to do in your life. He wants to do in my life today. He wants to bring you out of that which enslaves you, that which is destroying you, and he wants to set you free. So the title of today's message is Crossing Over. And here's what we're gonna see in this section, three things. We're gonna talk about being between a rock and a hard place and an army and the sea. We're gonna talk about denial is not just a river in Egypt. You know I had to get that one in before I finished the series on Exodus, right? All right, but it's, it's gonna be good. All right, and the next one is the great escape. Okay, so let's begin. Between a rock and a hard place and an army and the sea. So we saw in our study last week how God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and he began to lead them to where he was taking them and he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Here's what was really interesting. As he led them out of Egypt, he didn't lead them along the normal, easy, existing road. Like there was actually a very well-traveled and maintained road, a nice and easy road that led from Egypt to Canaan, which is their ancestral homeland. That's where they're going back to. There's a nice, easy road. It had merchants on it selling water, which is pretty handy if you've got children and two million people and elderly people along the road, but God did not lead them along that nice, easy, established road. Instead, he led them in a completely different way. He led them off the road and into the wilderness. Now, why would he do that? Maybe you can even relate to that. Maybe that's like, you're like, that is my life, right? Like, rather than leading me on the safe and easy and established road, God, for some reason, has led me out into the wilderness, and I'm just following him, and I don't even know where I'm going, right? Now, why would God do this? Oh, in the case of the Israelites, it was because there were untold dangers ahead on that road, that established road, and God wanted to protect them from those things. They, from their vantage point, couldn't see those dangers, but God could, of course, because he, could, he already knew that they were there. And so God led the people out into the wilderness for their own good, for their own protection. Now, here in chapter 14, this is only a short time, maybe 
several days, maybe a week or two weeks after Pharaoh finally agreed to let the people go from Egypt. And now he's changing his mind. He says to his advisors, wait a second, what did we do? We just let our entire slave labor force go? Like that doesn't make any sense. Like we're gonna, we're gonna ruin our economy. Who's gonna do all the work around here now, right? And so he's saying, what were we thinking? Well, it's kind of funny because if you've been following the story, there are 10 very good reasons why Pharaoh let them go. 10 plagues, terrible plagues that God brought upon Egypt because Pharaoh was resisting God. Remember Pharaoh? Remember those plagues that decimated your land? Remember um, how even your own firstborn son died in his sleep because you stubbornly resisted God? Are you forgetting so quickly, Pharaoh? Really? Look at where your hard heart has gotten you. And now you're going to start doing it again? That's not a good idea. Check out what Pharaoh's reasoning is for going after the people of Israel. It's in verse 3. He says, The people are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Some translations say, The people are bewildered. In other words, They were wandering around. It looked like they were lost. They weren't going in a straight line. Uh, It says the wilderness has shut them in. You know what that means? It means they're trapped. And we're going to talk about that more in just a second. Okay, so Pharaoh's military, he sent out some people to kind of scope out, okay, where are the children of Israel at? What are they doing? So they're watching them, and they're just wandering, like, where are they going? They're not even on a road. They're just wandering in the wilderness. They're not even going straight. It looks like they're disoriented and confused. Uh, they've left the main roads. Looks like they're, they're lost. And, and they've got themselves into this spot where they're actually trapped with their backs against the sea between a cliff and a mountain. And Pharaoh says, great, perfect chance. We can overtake them. We'll bring them back to Egypt, make them our slaves again. Easy. Here's the thing. Are these people actually lost? No, they're not lost. They're, they're following God. God's leading them. But apparently, and here's the interesting thing, God was leading them in such a way that to outside eyes, it looked like they were lost. It looked like they didn't know where they were going, that they were just wandering around. Now, God is leading them in a way, in other words, which doesn't seem logical to people on the outside. Now, why would God do that? He says in verse one, well, before we explain why God did that, let's talk about this. Verse one, God tells Moses, turn back, Right? In other words, you're going this direction now. Turn back, to do a 180. Turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hairoth between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. Okay, now it's kind of hard to get this from that, but, but if you think about it, it makes sense. Here's what's going on. God told them to set up camp in this spot that is boxed in by a mountain on one side, a cliff on the other side, and with the sea at their backs. There's only one way in and one way out, which is a terrible place to camp with two million people. Um, It's a terrible idea from a strategic uh, point of view because if somebody attacks them, if an army attacks them, they're going to be sitting ducks, right? They're, They're in trouble. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh gets word uh, that they're where they're at, that they're boxed in. And so Pharaoh sends this army with 600 chariots. Now chariots at that time, this is the greatest military innovation. This is the greatest weapon of death that people had created by this time. I mean, if somebody had chariots and you don't, you're totally outmatched. 
when the people of Israel realize what's happening, that they're boxed in with the sea at their backs, a cliff on one side, a mountain on the other side, and an army coming uh, the only way out, they realize they're stuck. And so they say to Moses, hey, were there not enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Kind of reminds me of that Australian tourist who was in New York, and uh, he was crossing the street, and he almost got run over by a taxi. And uh, the taxi driver stuck his head out the window and said, hey, buddy, did you come here to die? He said, no, 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 I came here yesterday. Took a second for you. So they say, did you bring us out here to die? And he says, no. Right out here a couple weeks ago. What are you talking about? Right, okay, so here's what I want you to see. God set this whole thing up on purpose, right, in order to draw Pharaoh out, in in order to provoke him to come out after the people of Israel with his army. It was God who led these people into this predicament that they're in. God himself led them into this spot where they're boxed in, where there's no way out, and where there's an army bearing down on them. Why? Because God was going to make a way, a way which they had never thought of or imagined. Now let's consider this. Why did God do this to them? And if we consider this, it might give us some insight into why God might do similar things in our lives from time to time. I see two reasons why, uh, and they're actually clearly stated in the text, both reasons, why God did this. Number one, he did this to show his power to his people so they would trust in him. So look at what happened at the end of this experience. Verse 31, it says this. We didn't read this verse. This is the last verse here. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That was the fruit of this for those people. You know, if you look at the great stories of God's deliverance in the Bible, almost all of them happen in situations that people could not get themselves out of. In other words, such a predicament that the people can't save themselves. And that's when God does these amazing acts of deliverance. Now, let me ask you this. Do you ever, personally, do you ever pray, God, I want more of you in my life? God, I want to trust you more. I want you to increase my faith. Those are good prayers, but let me tell you this. Do you know how that happens practically? Do you know how your faith grows? Do you know how you learn to trust in God? It's by being in situations like this, where you're boxed in between a rock and a hard place, with your back against the sea and an army bearing down on you. When God is the only thing you've got left, the only thing you can turn to and all you have, Sometimes God leads us into situations like this so he can show you his power and deliver you in ways you would have never imagined. Maybe you've heard the name Corey Ten Boom. If you haven't, let me tell you about her real quick. Uh, she was a Christian woman in a Christian family in the Netherlands. Uh, they lived during World War II. And when the Nazis came into the Netherlands and they were, they were rounding up the Jewish people and sending them off to concentration camps and to their ultimate death, uh, the Ten Boom family was helping rescue people and hide them in a place that they called the hiding place, which is a place that they had created to hide these Jewish people from the Nazis. Well, after a while, uh, somebody tipped off the Nazis um, to what they were doing. The Nazis came in, and not only did they take those people whom the Ten Boom family had been hiding, but they also arrested the Ten Boom family members themselves, and they sent them to concentration camps, Right? And so Corey Tenboom and her family, they're Christians. They tried to help the Jewish people. They end up getting put in a concentration camp. 
And uh, Corey Ten Boom survived the concentration camp, and she went on to write her autobiography, her memoirs. And one of the things she said is so powerful and so enduring. Listen to this phrase she said. She said, you may never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. See, sometimes you got to get to that point. Here in the wilderness, the people experience God's presence and God's provision in incredible ways, which they never would have on the easy road, on the nice road, on the established road. Was it hard? Absolutely. Was it worth it? Without question. Yes, it was worth it. Now think about if they had gone by the nice and easy road. It would have been nicer and it would have been easier for a while, but here's what would have happened in the, in the end. They would have been recaptured by the Egyptians and they would have been taken back into that same bondage and slavery that God just set them free from. They would end up right back where they began. And you know what else would have happened? They never would have seen God save them in the ways that he did and God provide for them in the ways that, they di- that he did. Was it hard? Absolutely. Was it worth it? Most definitely. Sometimes God puts us in difficult circumstances in order to grow our faith, in order to teach us to trust in him. But like with the Israelites, it's because he loves you and it is for your good. That brings us to our second point, and that's this. God did this to show his glory to the world. In verse 18, God tells Moses the reason he did this whole thing was so that, it says, so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten my glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. In other words, this whole setup wasn't only for the sake of the Israelites to build their faith. It was also because God wanted to make himself known to the Egyptians. It's as if God would say, I'm going to put you in this predicament. I'm going to put you in this tough spot, in this brutal place, because the Egyptians are watching and I want to show them something about myself through what's going to happen to you. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you feel stuck in some spot in your life. Maybe you feel stuck in an unfulfilling marriage. Maybe you feel stuck in an unfulfilling job. Maybe you feel stuck with a difficult family member. Maybe you feel stuck in a difficult financial situation. But here's the thing. When other people see you walk with God, and trust God in the midst of those difficult circumstances, and they see how God works in you in the midst of those things, and how God works in and through your life because of those things, he will be glorified. And here's the thing to remember. This is the big idea. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. That's super important. Let me say that again. God doesn't exist for us. He doesn't exist to give you that little boost that you need and to help you accomplish your goals. No. We are created by him and we are created for him. We exist for him. He created us for his purposes and to bring his glory. So check this out. God actually had more in mind than just the Egyptians. He says in Exodus chapter 9 at the beginning of all this, when he's in the middle of the plagues, he says, here's the purpose for which I'm doing all of these things. He says, quote, so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. These things were done so that the world could see, so that people would see God's mighty works and trust in him as Savior and Lord. Now, here's here's something I want to show you. Fast forward with me 40 years, 40 years into the future from this point where they're standing at the shores of the Red Sea. There's a prostitute 
who lives in the city of Jericho, several hundred miles from this spot where God's gonna split the Red Sea. Her name was Rahab. And here's what it says about Rahab. It says that she had faith in the God of Israel. Now think about that. How did she even know about the God of Israel? How could she have faith in the God of Israel? She's not from the Israelites. How is she, the Israelites are, are wandering in the wilderness. How does she even know who they are? Well, it actually tells us in the text. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, when Rahab meets the Jewish people for the first time, she says something that I'm sure surprised them. Here's what she says. She says, yeah, I know about you guys. In fact, she says, everybody around here knows about you guys. And we all know about your God. And here's why. Because we heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. That's how Rahab got saved. That's how Rahab came to trust and believe in the Lord by hearing about this amazing thing that God did when he backed his people up against the water where they had no way out and then he saved them by making a way that they could have never imagined. Sometimes God doesn't lead you down the easy road. I'll tell you that. Sometimes he will even put you in difficult, challenging, maybe even heartbreaking, difficult situations between a rock and a hard place with the sea at your back and an army at your front. But here's his promise to you in the midst of it. Every bit of it, every bit of it is for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory, even if you don't see it yet from your vantage point. This brings us to our, uh, our next point, which is this. You're gonna be, uh, these last two points are pretty short. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. In verse 11, when the people see that they're, they're boxed in and the Egyptian army is, is coming to get them, what do they say? They start freaking out and they say, hey man, you know, Egypt wasn't really that bad actually, you know, it was actually kind of nice there. I mean, I kind of miss it. Like, I, I wish I was back in Egypt right now, right? Like, hey Moses, we never asked you to take us out of Egypt. We wanted to stay there. We loved Egypt, right? That was the good life. Those were the good old days. Now, is that true? Not at all. Not even close. Uh, they were miserable in Egypt. Life was terrible in Egypt. They begged God to take them out of Egypt. Here's the thing. These people are completely delusional about the past. They're in utter denial about what life was actually like in Egypt. These are the same people, though, remember, who just saw God do 10 major plagues in Egypt. God gave them irrefutable proof that he loves them, that he's committed to them, and he just, you, he just brought the most powerful military force in the world to its knees, and he set them free. And yet, it doesn't even come to these people's minds to think that if God did all that for them then, well, why can't he do something now to save them too? The only person who's thinking rationally right now is Moses. And Moses says, hey, God can save us. I mean, why would he lead us out here, do all this work to set us free, just to lead us out here to let us fail and, and let us die in the wilderness? I think like the Israelites, there can be a tendency in our minds to um, romanticize the past, right? And we forget what God saved us from and what it was really like. And we start saying things like this, oh, the good old days, you know, back in Egypt, my old life, we lived like kings. We had mountains of meat. They actually say that later on. We had mountains of meat. No, they didn't. Come on. Uh, life was great. Yeah. 
Remember when you were crying out to God to save you? It couldn't be further from the truth. Here they are. It's only been a short time since God saved them out of Egypt and they, they've already forgotten. They're already lacking faith that God could do something today in their situation now. See, here's the thing. Sometimes when God puts our faith to the test, we don't always pass with flying colors. Sometimes we respond like the children of Israel did and not like Moses did. Here's the thing. Even though they doubted, it was God who saved them by a decisive act. Here, here's what I want to point out to you. Okay, at this point, they've come out of Egypt and they are technically free, right? Technically, like on paper, they're no longer slaves. But yet, look at them. Look at them. They're no longer in physical bondage, but they're still in bondage to different things. They're slaves to fear. They're paralyzed by fear. They're slaves to their senses, what they see and hear and feel. They're slaves to their circumstances. The only one who's not a slave is, is Moses. There's no slavery in him. He trusts God. He's, uh, he isn't a slave to fear or to senses or to circumstances. You see, it's one thing to take the people out of the slavery. It's another thing to take the slavery out of the people. And the same is true in our lives. To be a Christian means that you have changed, you have experienced a change in your status. Before, your status was condemned. Now your status has been changed. You have a different thing written on the top of your paper that says who you are. Your status is now justified. That's your status, justified. You've been set free. Your status has been changed. But like with the people of Israel, it's one thing to take us out of slavery. It's another thing to take the slavery out of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British preacher, used to use this analogy. He said, you know, in the, in the southern United States, when we had slavery, Think about the Emancipation Proclamation. It's a proclamation that was made and, and you know, so many slaves were set free in the southern states. Now, for some of them, having lived their whole lives as slaves, it was a transition, a very, probably very difficult transition to transition to learning to live as free men and women. It, it was a whole new way of life. It was a whole new approach to, to themselves and to other people and to seeing the world around them. And so when we talk about freedom and liberation, which is what the book of Exodus is all about, see, here's the thing. Many people today define freedom as not having a master or Lord over you. But here's the thing. That's impossible. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't have a master or a Lord over them. And, and this isn't just my opinion. Don't just take my word for it. Great thinkers throughout history have said the same thing. Let me give you a quote from Euripides, this is 400 BC. Euripides, a Greek philosopher, he says, no one is truly free. They are all a slave to wealth, fortune, the law, or other people restraining them from acting according to their will. If you don't believe Euripides, maybe you'll believe Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan had a song called, You've Gotta Serve Somebody. Here's, you know, it's got like four verses. I'll just read you one. He says in uh, verse two, he says, you might be a rock and roll addict prancing on stage. You might have money and drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or have some, or, or some high degree thief. You may, they may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And this is what the Bible teaches too, right? Paul the apostle in Romans chapter six, he says, either you will serve God or you will serve something else but you will serve something. And whatever you serve, 
you are a slave to that thing. In other words, that thing is your master, whether it's God who's your master or whatever that thing is. And the message of Paul there in Romans chapter 6 and the message of the book of Exodus is that the only way to be truly free is when God is your master. That's why, whereas the people of Israel right now, are, they've been set free from physical slavery, but they're still slaves to fear and circumstance and senses. But Moses is free. Why? Because he's gone one step further than the rest of the people. He has given his life. He has said, God, you are my master and I serve you. Whatever you're living for, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it will control your life. Moses is living for God in his glory and that controls his actions. It controls his reactions to things in his life. The other people aren't there yet. They're still living for other things. Maybe it's safety and comfort. I think that's what it was for them. Safety and comfort. And so when their safety and their comfort are threatened, they freak out and they say, why all this hardship? Let's just go back to being slaves. You see, whatever you're enslaved to, other than God, it will, it will tear you down and it will ultimately destroy you. So let's see what God did now to set them free uh, from the slavery that still existed in their hearts. Here's what happened. Moses is instructed to lift his staff over the water. And when he does that, it causes the waters to part and the people cross over on dry land. Now, there are many theories about where this took place. Um, the main theory, which I, I hold to, which has developed more recently as people have you know, studied this as much as they have, is that a great wind could have caused something like this to happen. Now, it doesn't mean it wasn't supernatural. Of course it was supernatural. The timing of it was absolutely supernatural. It was caused by God. So they say that on the Sea of Aqaba, the Sea of Aqaba is a kind of inlet of the Red Sea, if you know what the Sinai Peninsula looks like, just to the east of, of mainland Egypt. Sinai Peninsula in the Red Sea there has two fingers that go up on each side. So the finger that goes up on the east side which separates Sinai from modern-day Saudi Arabia is called the Sea of Aqaba. And so there are places there where there are these so-called land bridges which are beneath the surface of the water, but the theory is that if there was such a wind, it could reveal that land bridge. And so um, that's the main theory right now as to how this happened and where it happened on that Eastern part. So what that means is that when they crossed over, they crossed over from Sinai into what's now modern-day Arabia, Saudi Arabia. So the Red Sea crossing, again, is mentioned throughout the Bible as a picture of salvation that God wants to work in our lives. Uh, the Red Sea crossing illustrates this. Salvation is a crossing over. It's a crossing over. Jesus said, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And he says he has passed from death to life. They've crossed over. In Colossians, Paul says that in Christ, God has caused us to cross over from darkness to light. In Romans, it says that to be a Christian is to cross over from condemnation to justification. Before the Israelites crossed over, think about this, they were sentenced to death. They were facing a death sentence. But as soon as they crossed over, they came out from under that death sentence. It's a picture of the gospel. Have you ever thought about this? Like as the people were crossing over, what were they thinking? What were they saying to each other? I kind of like to imagine that if it was me and I was crossing over, you know, it's like a canyon of water, right? You've got like a wall of water on the right, a wall of water on the left, and you're walking through the middle. I kind of try to think, you know, what would that be like and how would I react? And I, you know, I tend to give myself the benefit of the doubt, which I probably don't deserve. 
but I tend to say this to myself, like, I would be like, wow, this is amazing. I think that's kind of how most of us think. If I was walking through that, those walls of water, I'd be like, this is amazing, awesome. I'd just be taking it in. But then I really think about, like, human nature. You know what those people were probably doing? Most of them, like 90%, were probably going like, oh, no, oh, no. This is going to fall on me. This is not a good idea. I don't think this is a good idea, Moses. This is not going to work. We're all going to die, right? They must have been panicking as they walked through with these walls of water, not sure how long these things are going to stand. Um, and, and yet it wasn't contingent on how much faith they had. And it wasn't contingent on the quality of their faith. It was a decisive act of God on their behalf. And the same is true for us. The message of the gospel is that God has saved us by a decisive act, what he did for us. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He took your place in order to change your status from condemned to justified, from condemned to redeemed. And because of what he did for you, you can cross over from death to life. If you have put your faith in him, you have crossed over from death to life. If you're here today and you you have not put your faith in him, I urge you to do so today. Because here's the thing, those walls of water that allowed the people to cross over the Red Sea, they didn't stand forever. There came a time when the walls came crashing down, when time ran out. So I urge you to see that the Lord is offering you a way to cross over today. If you haven't yet done that, you need to. You don't know how much time you have to make that decision. He has done a decisive act for you. Here's the last thing I'll say. Once you've received this new status, once you've crossed over from death to life, what about those things that still hold you captive, that still make you a slave? I heard someone put it this way. He said, if you've crossed over and you're saved, but you look at your life and you see that you're still in bondage to certain things, to fear, to anger, to things from the past, from your senses, uh, to your circumstances, it's as if you've crossed over the Red Sea. Your old masters are on the other side and they're shouting at you, obey us, obey us or die. And you say, okay, I will. And he says, don't do that. Instead, speak to those things, those former captors and say, I'm free now. I've crossed over. You are not my life. Christ is my life. You are not my joy. Christ is my joy. You are not my master. Christ is my master. So take hold of that freedom that you have in Christ and give yourself to him completely. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you that it's not by what we do, but because of what you have done for us. But I pray you'd help us to take hold of that and take hold of that freedom that you've given us in Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.